everyone to Unpacking Latin America, the podcast of the Institute of Latin American Studies at Columbia University, which brings to our audience the work of faculty at Columbia University and Barnard College and how it helps our understanding of the region. This is our second episode on COVID-19 in Latin America. The prior one was on its epidemiological consequences with Dr. Silvia Martins, and this one is on its economic consequences with Professor Jose Antonio Ocampo. Jose Antonio Campo is a professor at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University, where he directs the Economic and Political Development Concentration. He's also the chair of the UN Committee for Development Policy and the co-president of the Initiative for Policy Dialogue, as well as a member of the Committee of Global SOT at Columbia University. Jose Antonio Campo has an extensive career prior to coming to Colombia on his natal Colombia and across the world. He has served as Minister of Finance, Minister of Agriculture and Chairman of the the board of the Central Bank in Colombia. He was also the United Nations Under Secretary General for Economic and Social Affairs, as well as the Executive Secretary of the Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean, among his many appointments. Jose Antonio Campo will talk to us about the economic consequences of COVID-19 in Latin America, the current epicenter of the pandemic. The dramatic effects of quarantines on employment and production are heightened by the uncertainty on the future of trade and commodity prices. However, the pandemic pandemic might have opened the opportunity for designing new social policies, reaching not only the poor, but also the vulnerable population in many countries of the region. The lessons from the pandemic are the need to foster investment in health, to improve fiscal capacity while discussing the redistributed efforts of the state. Welcome, Jose Antonio. Uh, okay, thank you. Thank you. It's great seeing you. Jose Antonio, COVID-19 had many effects on Latin American economies, both due to the cost of fighting the pandemic and due to its economic impact, given the need to quarantine people in most countries of the region, which do not have adequate health systems to fight this pandemic. In fact, the WHO just declared the region the new epicenter of COVID-19. So could you please tell our audience what are the effects of the pandemic on the real economy of the region? What are the estimates of the impact of the pandemic on Latin American economies, which, as we both know, had not finished 2019 in great shape. It were already a slowdown coming at the end of last year. So how do you see the effects on the region and do these vary across countries? Well, uh, thank you very much for the invitation, Vicky. And let me uh, start by, by saying that, in fact, according to the... Uh, information on new persons affected and deaths uh, associated to the pandemic Latin America is now the uh, probably the epicenter of the expansion. But within Latin America, Brazil is by far the worst case. Although we still don't know due to the, last, the lack of tests how much it is going on, let's say in Venezuela, even in my country, Colombia, or in Mexico. So the magnitude of the epidemic is still an unknown. But in any case, it is very bad in Brazil. Uh, it's also worsened, has also worsened in Peru and Chile. And in Colombia, the upward trend continues. According to all the analysis that have been done, the um, major effect or major economic effect of the pandemics is as associated to the, uh, the quarantines. A full quarantine, which is what many countries have adopted in different periods and the, uh, the full quarantine can imply a reduction of economic activity uh, beyond, you know, on top of the 10%. The numbers for the Europe are showing that. The numbers for the U.S. are also going to show that. And this, I think the, the second quarter in Latin America will be uh, something like a reduction of 10% or more. 
Now, the, the big question relates then to the, to the recovery. How fast the recovery uh, is going to, uh, to be, as we say in economics, it's going to be a V-shape or perhaps a W-shape. That is that we will have another fall because of the expansion of the epidemic uh, once we start to, to reduce the quarantines, to move into social distances, social distancing that uh, is not as hard as a quarantine. In any case, uh, according to, uh, to the uh, estimates of the Economic Commission for Latin America, the World Bank and the IMF, it is expected now that Latin America's uh, gross uh, domestic product will fall by a bit more than 5% this year, which is the, uh, one of the worst crises in history. Since I write economic history, I can say that I have found only two cases in which it has been worse, which was 1914 because of a, a huge in the recession in Argentina and in 1930 because of the Great Depression. So those are the only two other cases in history which have been worse. And actually, uh, this year may be worse than 5%. We, we still don't know because, again, it depends on the shape of the recovery, which, uh, according to all, all analysts, I expected that the second semester would be a, a semester of recovery, but that, that may not materialize, or, or we will have a, a, a W shape. Now, the, the fall is going to be quite diverse across the region, according to these estimates. Uh, Let's say uh, Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, and Ecuador being the worst cases with uh, reductions of maybe 6% or more. And then uh, you have uh, Chile and Peru, which according to the projections is about 4%, and Colombia, which is about 3%. But I, I actually think that Peru, Chile, and Colombia may be worse. I mean, in Colombia, for example, which is my country, there are estimates of minus 3, minus 5, and minus 7. And I think we are closer to minus 5 because the, uh, the quarantine has been expanded an additional month. The countries of the region have been trying to minimize the economic effects of quarantines by producing policies to trying to keep the employment, providing loans to companies, postponing tax payment. What do you think are the most effective of those policies across the region in terms of compensating for the economic effects? In terms of compensating for the uh, fall in economic activity, there is nothing else different from uh, reducing the extent of the quarantines. Otherwise, economic activity will remain depressed. For example, let's take the case of Colombia. According to the household surveys, when uh, we have in a full quarantine, three out of five workers are, are, uh, are not employed, are, are out of work, and only one can work digitally. So two out of five are totally out. Now, the, the, that may be a reduction of a, you know, at least 10%, maybe more than that, but the economic activity will only uh, start to recover after you start to allow them to work, to leave the quarantine, which is actually what many countries are doing now, including Colombia. I think your question is about the, the compensating for the effects of the quarantine. Also, I'm, I'm interested in issues like loans to companies so that they wouldn't bankrupt before you really, you know, you flexibilize the quarantine. I mean, there's several policies that are trying to reduce the long-term effects. So keeping people employed during the crisis under the assumption that they would go back to work after the quarantines are lifted. What do you think of those policies? Let me say that the, there is one policy, which is the one that has been practiced, but it's being practiced by many countries, which is subsidizing the people who are out of work or are, you know, or, well, it's not an unemployment insurance, but it's household support. And I think that that's a, a one of the instruments that's being used. Now, in terms of guaranteeing that the companies survive, 
the, the and uh, that employment uh, is kept by those companies. I think there are three different kinds of policies. The first one is uh, guarantees. So some government guarantee fund that uh, guarantees the uh, banking sector for the loans to the firms that continue employing their workers. That is a policy that has been practiced by a few countries. I mean, Colombia, Peru, Chile, and Uruguay, I understand, are the countries that are doing most in this regard. Now, the second is, is loans from the uh, public sector banks or the uh, development banks. This is a policy also that is being implemented by several countries to try to allow companies to have financing during the crisis. And the last, which is, as far as I can know, it's only being practiced by Colombia, but maybe I'm wrong, is a partial subsidy to, uh, to the, for employment, which is, uh, in the case of Colombia, starting this month, uh, 40% of a minimum wage is being paid for uh, workers that continue to be employed if the firm has reduced sales by 20% or more. So it's a subsidy on employment. But I understand the, the largest subsidy, the, more, the most amount of money for support has gone to cash transfers to households, as well as the compensatory mechanisms. One that is quite, quite important is the fact that it's a, a food subsidy for children. Because you know, children, uh, when they go to school, everywhere they, they get a meal or more than one meal. And now since they are not going to school, they don't have those meals. And therefore the nutrition problem of children is very important and, and there are mechanisms by which the governments are compensating the poor households. So we were talking about the informal sector and, and cash transfers for people, for poor people, for people who are out of work. And this brings me back to the discussion you had with Manuela Orjuela in a webinar I had the pleasure to coordinate, where you boys, both of you pointed out to the challenges of the very large informal sector of Latin America. This is about half of the workforce varies per country. And these people live from their daily income. Their jobs are the most affected by the quarantine, as you, you just said. Some of them work on the street. They're, they rarely have access to a computer to to work remotely. And these people are also the most at risk of getting ill, we have seen already in the region. They don't have running water, they live in overcrowded housing, many of them have pre-existing conditions. So I would like to talk a little bit more about these emergency income programs that have been established upon the existing ones already. So most of the countries in the region had conditional cash transfers, but they have been emergency income established in most countries, as you say, for this sector. I think Peru was the largest of all, but Brazil and Argentina also established them are seen very large. So what is your view of the effect of those programs in this population that is the most hardly hit both economically and in health terms? Actually, it's fortunate that Latin America had developed in previous decades the conditional cash transfers, uh, because that uh, not only the conditional cash transfer, for example, in Argentina also, and the solidarity uh, pensions, for example, and, and in many other countries, you know, some pension mechanisms that are paid by the government, which are subsidies, let's say, for households. So those mechanisms have been widely used during the crisis to, again, to increase the support for poor households. However, there is a, a vulnerable population which is not subject to those programs. And there has been an, an attempt to also support those households during the crisis. It's vulnerable, let's say, to some solidarity income of some sort. It's hard to, to know, uh, you know to what extent these programs are working. 
in different countries because of the comparisons are, are difficult, but it's clear that, that Peru has the largest program. They are subsidizing, I understand, something like 70% of the households. And they, I mean, generally the conditional cash transfer only reach something between 20 and 30% of the households. So the Peru is a big one. And the subsidy that is being provided uh, is about $200, which is uh, by far the, uh, the largest that I've seen in Latin America. But the, the Brazilians have been expanding the programs, Argentina, Chile, Colombia, everyone has been you know, expanding the programs. Surprisingly, I haven't seen a similar move on the side of Mexico to increase the programs for the poor during the crisis, actually, because Mexico is one of the countries that has not quite recognized this as a major crisis. And there is, of course, the, the big, big problem, which is Venezuela, where the, you know, the conditions are terrible, not only in terms of income, but access to water and the quality of the hospitals, which are, uh, I, I was looking at the news yesterday about the quality of the hospitals in, in Venezuela, and they're really in a terrible shape. Some of them don't even have access to water. I mean, hospitals don't have access to water. So I think it has been good on the one hand that there the, were the conditional cash transfer programs and other subsidies for the poor. The new programs, which have been uh, a quite, quite good in terms of expansion. And I think one of the legacies of this crisis uh, is that we will have a, a much better mechanisms to support the poor and the vulnerable population after the crisis comes. For example, one issue that is going to be a major issue uh, beyond the worst part of the crisis, which is the recovery of employment. This is very interesting, and, and it's true that the countries have had to make an effort to reach this vulnerable population, which means to get information on these people that they didn't have before. And one of these re the reasons that people, we didn't have the information on these people, is the large informal sector had the other side of the coin, which is pretty weak fiscal capacity. All of the countries in the region had very weak fiscal capacity. Taxation has always been a problem. I assume it's much more of a problem now that the economy is collapsing across the region and is very, very hardly hit. But thinking of, you know, you're, you're an economic historian, and even what we have now as fiscal capacity was developed in many countries as a result of the Great Depression. So there's both, you know, the, the big shock on the taxation capacity of the state, but maybe an opportunity here to reshape the fiscal capacity. What are your thoughts on that regard, on both the consequences of COVID-19 on taxation and the opportunities for fiscal reform? Actually, let me complement the previous answer because I didn't mention that I didn't use the word informality, the labor force. But of course, one of the big, big problems is that uh, during quarantines, one part of the population is uh, left without a job simply because there are people who, you know, basically informal workers who, you know, sell on the streets or do, you know, day-by-day -day work and, and they are left without no income and no employment. And therefore, that's why my preference is for those programs that support the, the poor households and the vulnerable households, and not necessarily for the employment. Because the, the, let's say, suppose 50% or more of the workers are informal, then those are not supported by employment programs. They can only be supported by income support programs anyway. Now, on the fiscal capacity, one of the big issues that we have in this crisis uh, is that we're much worse than in the face of the 2008-2009 uh, global financial crisis. Because the fiscal conditions were quite strong in Latin America at that time. At this time, we come after five years of weak economic growth and weakening fiscal accounts of most countries. So, for example, just to take one number, 
The debt, the public sector debt to GDP ratio was 40% in 2008. It's now 62% in 2019. So the crisis has caught governments with a very weak fiscal capacity. The response for that reason is not very strong in most countries. I mean, it's very strong in Peru and Chile because those two countries have a much stronger fiscal capacity. Interestingly, it's also very strong in Brazil, despite the orthodox government and, and the high debt to GDP ratio of Brazil, you know, weak fiscal conditions. But, you know, I guess for political reasons, uh, the programs have been expanded also in Brazil in a substantial way. But many other countries uh, have not been able to, uh, to do much more uh, in terms of increasing spending. Now, after the crisis, in any case, the debt to GDP ratios of most countries will increase, in part because of the spending that is done during the crisis, but also because of the significant reduction in tax revenue that they're going to have. And, um, and one of the big issues after the crisis is how to uh, strengthen the fiscal capacity. I mean, you're right that in the 1930s, and actually many decades after, we had a very uh, important process of building the tax revenues of which the governments could expand their programs. And this is going to be a major issue after this crisis. And it has both, let's say, a quantitative dimension, but also a distributive dimension. Because on the quantitative side, it's because they have all governments will have to increase revenues in order to stabilize debts, the public sector debt ratios. But it's also a very important dimension is distributive. For one basic reason is that according to all international analysis, one of the big weaknesses of Latin America is that the tax systems do not redistribute income among the, you know, between the rich and the poor. And I think one of the big topics in the tax revenues that will have to be adopted after the crisis is how to increase the redistribution done through the tax system. Thank you, Jose Antonio. And, and you really brought to the other side, of which Latin America has always dealt with its fiscal weakness, which is debt. I guess since the time of the wars of independence, access to credit has been the solution. And you've worked a lot on this issue on international regulation of financial markets. So COVID-19 has produced a flight out of emerging markets into more secure investment. But the, the region seems to be faring differently. I mean, there are countries like Argentina and Ecuador that have a very dire debt situation. Argentina is restructuring. Ecuador is, is, has called for a standstill during the pandemic. But there are other countries such as Mexico and Colombia that seem to be able to access foreign markets. So... What do you think is the different, explains the different impact of COVID-19 on the credit situation of Latin American markets? And to what extent do you think that proposals like debt forgiveness or generalized standstill are appropriate for the region or there should be more, you know, more policies that distinguish, distinguish more across countries? Let me say that I see, um, let's say, two polar categories among the countries of the region in this regard. And probably an intermediate case which could expand, actually, this crisis gets longer. The first case is the case of the countries that have to restructure the debt in a deep sense, <laughs> in a deep way. Let's say, which, uh, in my view, are Argentina and Ecuador, as you, as you uh, mentioned. In the other, you have the countries that have access to private capital markets. And one of the peculiar issues that we have seen, uh, let's say, in the last month or so, in fact, the bond markets, particularly the bond markets in, uh, in hard currencies, in dollars and euros, have started to recover for emerging market economies. And several Latin American countries have been able to access those markets. You mentioned Mexico, which, for example, did one of the large issue of bonds on the 22nd of uh, April. 
But you also have Chile, Peru, actually Paraguay, Guatemala, Panama, and Colombia. Colombia not directly through the government, but through two public sector enterprises that have been financed also through bond issues. So for those countries, I think the best solution is, is the mix of, uh, that we saw after the 2008-2009 global financial crisis, which is a mix of more multilateral financing from the banks, uh, from the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, the Development Bank of Latin America, and uh, private financing. There is an intermediate case of countries that are not in one of those polar categories and which may need this mechanism of, of a debt standstill. Now, the mechanism, the, the best proposal that I have seen uh, actually uh, has been by one of our colleagues, uh, Patrick Bolton and, and others, which have proposed a, a debt standstill mechanism that will be voluntary and managed by multilateral development banks. In those cases, all debts will be subject to no amortizations and the, uh, the interest payments uh, will be, in a sense, paid by the government to, to the multilateral development bank, but the multilateral development bank will relent those, those funds to, uh, to the countries uh, for the social programs required with the emergency, uh, the health or social programs. Now, that mechanism essentially uh, means that the debt, the foreign debt is not paid during the crisis, but it will have to be paid after the crisis. So it's a kind of extension of the maturity of the loans. I find that that's a very interesting mechanism. Uh, as I said, maybe more countries will, will need it. I mean, countries that have today access, if the crisis gets too long, may have to have a debt standstill of some sort. Uh, so I think there are three categories of countries and they should be you know, managed in a separate way. Thank you. Jose Antonio, I really, having you as an economic historian, I really want to take advantage of that. And the pandemic started officially, I guess, in February when the first case was recognized in Brazil, although it seems to have reached the region earlier. It seems to be getting close to the worst moment now. It's hard to evaluate on three months, as you just said. We don't know how long the crisis will take. And Latin America is a region that has experienced other crises, mostly economic crises. You mentioned the Great Depression, the 1914. There's also the debt crisis and the lost decade of the 1980s. And more recently, the five-year recession after the Asian crisis at the end of the 1990s into the new millennium. What's interesting is that after that last crisis, we had a big economic boom caused by higher commodity prices, and the big economic boom improved social indicators. There was a period of reduction in poverty, reduction in inequality, as you said, expansion of new types of social policies. Most of the region was democratic, and Latin American citizens finally expected, you know, increase their social expectations. They thought, okay, a, f a better future is finally coming to a region that had suffered so much economic and political instability. And when that was happening, we first were hit by an economic slowdown, already started before the pandemic, and now by a pandemic. So although this crisis is very different from the prior ones, it affects both the demand and the supply side, I'm wondering to what extent can we take lessons from prior crises that can help us understand what's going to happen this time. I mean, there are things that we might recover. We've seen the cycles on commodity prices, like now the oil is down, but it might go up. There are other things that might produce more longstanding changes, Tourism might change, and then that's a very important part of the, of the economy of the region. But what are, in your view, the lessons from history to try to understand what we should be looking for when we seek to see the immediate future after the pandemic? 
Let me say that in all the previous crises, the, uh, the problem was essentially the balance of payments. That is limited export revenues because of the deterioration of the terms of trade of commodities, for example, as you mentioned, or uh, limited financing, generally the mix of them, of both of them. By the way, those issues are also present in part today. So after the crisis, we have to see how things are going to be managed. I mean, for example, in the, first of all, we have two new phenomena I should mention that are quite important for several countries, which is the, the total collapse of, tour, of international tourism, and second, the uh, reduction in, in remittances from workers, particularly remittances coming from the United States and from Spain, which are the two major countries where there are Latin American migrants. The World Bank estimates that remittances will fall by something like 19%. And then in terms of commodities, on top of that, we have the, the collapse of oil prices. So the oil producing countries like my own, Colombia, but also Venezuela, Ecuador are in a difficult shape because of that. But also actually uh, base metals, which uh, you know also affect Peru, uh, Chile, Brazil, which exports iron, iron ore. So there, there are many commodities that have fallen down. By the way, agriculture has not done badly. So agricultural prices have actually done relatively well in that context. And then in terms of financing, as I said, yes, a group of countries are coming back to private financing, which is actually good news. What is absolutely new about this crisis is the quarantines, the effect of the health problem. And therefore, they need also to develop a much better health systems. So going forward, I think there is something that has to be new from this crisis. I, I'm not sure that international trade will recover fast. Actually, we may experience one of the slowest growth of international trading history. It may never recover from the fall, you know, 15 or 20 percent this year, or, or only very slowly recover. So the opportunities provided by international trade are going to be much less. So there, there is a, a multitude of challenges, uh, some, of them, some of them similar to price crisis, but some of them, some totally new. I think the, the totally new is uh, what the hell is going to happen with international trade? That's a totally new phenomenon. Or rather, the only similarity in that case is the uh, Great Depression of the 1930s. But the, the fall of commodity prices uh, uh, is also a problem like he has been in, in several crises, and they may not recover as fast. I mean, I, I don't think, for example, there is any expectation that oil prices will recover too, you know, very strongly. And maybe base metals will not either, because the major market, which is China, may not be uh, as dynamic as it, as it was in, in, the late, in the early 21st century, when Latin America had a, a boom. And there are two totally different phenomena that we have discussed, which is how to support the poor and the vulnerable. And I think this is one of the important legacies of this crisis, and then how we're going to uh, develop better fiscal resources in order to stabilize the fiscal accounts, which will finish this crisis in a pretty bad shape. A last question, Jose Antonio, given the way you finish that's a little pessimistic, is there any sign that you see that could provide for a more optimistic view about the recovery for the region and for the U.S. that's so tied to the region? In the region as such, I'm not sure that there are really positive signs. Uh, the, I think the most positive sign I will uh, probably underscore is the fact that the international cultural prices are doing well. And I think that's an opportunity for several Latin American countries. On the side of the policies adopted by developed countries, I will really underscore one. In the analysis uh, that was done by the IMF on the global financial conditions, 
indicate that the magnitude of the support by the Fed to financial markets has been much stronger during this crisis than it was in 2008-2009. And that's why, very interestingly, uh, after, of course, the, uh, the initial collapse, which was actually not as strong as it had been in 2008, there, was a, there has been actually a recovery of financial markets uh, since late uh, March, in the case of the stock markets. And I think this recovery of bond markets for several Latin American countries and several emerging economies is one positive factor. I think the, uh, the fact that, you know, let's say in 2008, 2009, it took more than 12 months for Latin Americans countries to be able to go back to the bond markets. This time it has only been two months. And finally, maybe the size of the fiscal packages adopted by the U.S. and the European countries will also support a recovery, which is a strong. And in that case, we will also benefit from that strong recovery. The big question mark again is whether this is going to be a V-shaped recovery or it's going to be a W. That is going to end. We're going to have another second phase of the pandemic, which will also weaken economic activity again. Thank you, Jose Antonio, for a fascinating discussion. And thanks to our audience for listening to Unpacking Latin America. Our show is produced by Stephen Calabria from FM and AM Productions. Our music was produced by Manuel Garcia Orozco. Please check out the Institute of Latin American Studies at Columbia University on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Goodbye.